What was it like to cover President Donald Trump? Hi, I'm Deborah J. Saunders, former White House correspondent for the Las Vegas Review-Journal, now a fellow with the Discovery Institute. During the four years I covered the Trump White House, I went around the world with Donald Trump, from Riyadh to Singapore and Warsaw to Las Vegas. I witnessed Trump breaking the presidential travel playbook on four continents. I was there for the tarmac pageantry that fed Trump's ego. I was there when POTUS stomped all over the diplomatic niceties as other world leaders watched helplessly. I was there through the odd missteps, like when Trump held Prime Minister Theresa May's hand when she visited his White House. I was in Hamburg for the first time Trump and Russian President Vladimir Putin met in person. I was in Singapore for Trump's first summit with North Korean strongman Kim Jong-un. I rode in presidential motorcades and flew on Air Force One. Join me. But first, hang on. It's a bumpy ride. Episode 4, Travels with Trump. I saw Kim Jong-un in person when I covered the first summit between President Donald Trump and the North Korean strongman in Singapore in 2018. Of course I saw Kim in person, a normal person might react. The Las Vegas Review-Journal had sent me to the island nation to cover the summit. Some 3,000 journalists had shown up to see the historic first meeting of an American president and North Korean leader. So why wouldn't we all get a look at both leaders? Answer? The U.S. Media Center wasn't even on the same landmass where the summit occurred. That would be Sentosa Island. During the summit, only the travel pool, a dozen or so journalists, a sliver of the number of reporters covering the event, made it onto Sentosa Island. The rest of us watched the summit on screens in the massive media centers. Then we were bused to the island for Trump's post-summit presser. So how did I see Kim? The night before the summit, I was just filing my story when my friend Kota Takamoto, a reporter with Japanese outlet The Manishi, phoned. Kota was also in Singapore. He'd seen tweets that Kim might be heading for the Marina Bay Sands, the iconic architectural marvel that was owned by Sheldon and Miriam Adelson, who also happened to own my newspaper. There was no way I was going to miss that. So I grabbed my gear ran to the elevator and through the lobby and hailed a cab that left me sort of near the hotel. I sprinted across a bayfront bridge and elbowed my way to the front of an area cordoned off for the press. I caught a glimpse of Kim and his bodyguards when they left the Tony Hotel. The photos I snapped on my phone were not professional grade. But as soon as Kim was gone and security allowed people into the hotel, I found people who had a closer view of Kim and his entourage walking through the rooftop spagos. I interviewed patrons and got video for the RJ. I had the story because those of us in the cheap seats took care of each other. Thank you, Coda. After the face-to-face was over, both parties released a vague, unenforceable statement. Then Trump held a solo press conference that lasted some 70 minutes. It began with a four-minute trailer produced by Destiny Pictures with stock music and a professional narrator. The trailer was about a history-changing moment. When a man is presented with one chance that may never be repeated, what will he choose? Two men, two leaders, one destiny. 
Destiny, Destiny Pictures, Pictures presents. It was another press conference first. Trump's first foreign trip started in Saudi Arabia, then continued on to Jerusalem, Rome, Brussels, and Sicily. Trump deliberately began his first foray in Air Force One diplomacy and lands wholly to Islam, Judaism, and Christianity. Then he went to NATO headquarters in Brussels, where he dissed Article 5, the one-for-all and all-for-one provision that glues NATO together. The trip ended in Sicily with a G7 confab. In Sicily, most of the U.S. press weren't in the same town as Trump, except we were there when Trump spoke to U.S. troops at U.S. Naval Air Station Sigonella before returning to the United States. Trump, of course, traveled on Air Force One. The travel pool also flew on Air Force One. I traveled on a charter plane booked by the White House Travel Office that took off at Joint Base Andrews ahead of Trump's departure. After we landed in Riyadh, we boarded a bus that took us to the U.S. Press Hotel. From the bus, I saw a herd of camels roaming in the distance. Only the travel pool stayed at the Ritz-Carlton, the same hotel as POTUS. Later that year, Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman, also known as MBS, made the Riyadh Ritz-Carlton infamous when he detained hundreds of well-heeled royals as part of what was billed as an anti-corruption investigation. It was an opulent jail, but nonetheless a jail. The press corps stayed at the nearby Hilton Garden Inn. There was a press room with top-drawer internet connectivity. Administration officials briefed us there. The charter arrived in Riyadh before Trump. We checked into the press hotel. I tried to catch a few Zs before we were bussed back to the airport to watch Air Force One touch down. The Trump's plane and walk a red carpet on the tarmac. During the campaign, Trump famously supported a Muslim ban. In his first month in office, he signed a ban on travel by foreign nationals from seven Muslim-majority countries. And yet here he was, meeting with representatives of the Gulf Cooperation Council and Arab Islamic American leaders. He even participated in a ceremonial sword dance with Saudi princes, who welcomed the American president and took pride in Riyadh's role as the first destination in Trump's first foreign trip. Melania Trump put a lot of thought into her travel wardrobe. I pulled the First Lady's visit to the International American School of Riyadh. She did not wear a headscarf. Melania did wear a mantilla when she met the Pope at the Vatican days later. That's when the press corps learned that the First Lady is Catholic. At Ben Gurion Airport in Israel, when Trump reached out to hold her hand, she swatted it. One of the moments that stuck with me was the send-off for Trump at Sigonella Air Base in Sicily as he headed home after a triumphant journey. The hangar was packed. Most of the troops were cheering, but in the back you could see uniformed men and women making a point of showing no emotion. Not all members of the military were in Trump's camp. That was the last time during my time at the White House that the travel office arranged for a chartered press plane. Thereafter, we flew commercial. I also went to Poland, where Trump gave what might have been his best speech in Warsaw's Kuczynski Square. Afterward, Trump flew to Germany. 
I pitched the Poland Germany trip to my editors as an historic first face to face meeting between Trump and Putin at the G20 in Hamburg. What was supposed to be a 30 minute meeting stretched on for two hours and 15 minutes. Secretary of State Rex Tillerson, Treasury Secretary Steve Mnuchin, and Press Secretary Sean Spicer came to the press quarters to brief us after the meeting. Putin held his own press conference as well, where he asserted there was no Russian meddling in the 2016 election. In Hamburg, Trump came out in favor of NATO's Article 5. So, progress. The two leaders also left with a partial Syrian ceasefire agreement. The most consequential moment from the Poland-Germany trip occurred as Trump flew home on Air Force One. The New York Times had requested information about a June 2016 meeting at Trump Tower, attended by Don Jr., son-in-law Jared Kushner, campaign guru Paul Manafort, and Russian lawyer Natalia Veselnitskaya. The Times wanted to know what the meeting was about. The meeting had been pitched to the campaign, as a chance to talk to a Moscow insider who had dirt on Hillary Clinton. Although it turned out, the campaign did not get any dirt out of the meeting. To his credit, Don Jr. was ready to level with the Times about the reason for the meeting. But then Trump, stupidly, intervened by insisting falsely that the purpose of the Trump Tower talk was a discussion on the adoption of Russian children, a topic that did come up incidentally. That lie cost Trump credibility as special counsel Robert Mueller had begun his investigation into alleged collusion between Moscow and the Trump campaign. As I wrote at the time, it is the rare federal prosecutor who sees a suspect baldly lie about a key meeting, albeit to the media, not investigators, and doesn't smell a rat. I had pressed my editors to send me to the NATO confab in London in December 2019 because, I told them, I felt in my bones that Trump would be in a mood to talk. A lot. I assured the mothership that Trump would make news. I was right, but I did not see how Trump's urge to purge verbally would play out. At the close of the summit, I had arrived early at the room where Trump was supposed to talk to the press for an after-NATO briefing. I had a second row center seat. I was wearing a red plaid Harris tweed jacket with a velvet collar. I just knew that he would call on me. I had done everything right. Oddly, it turned out, I was too right about Trump's need to talk and talk and talk. He didn't wait for the press conference. During what usually are quickie pool sprays, Trump was so chatty that the avail with NATO Secretary General Jens Stoltenberg which was supposed to last 20 minutes, ate up 53 minutes. Pool sprays with French President Emmanuel Macron and Canadian Prime Minister Justin Trudeau lasted 39 and 30 minutes, respectively. Trump's chattiness wreaked havoc on the event's timetable. During a reception at Buckingham Palace, an unknowing Trudeau was videotaped live as he laughed with Macron, British Prime Minister Boris Johnson, and others about Trump turning a pool spray into essentially a 40-minute press conference. Trump was not amused. He took out his anger on the press corps. While we were waiting for Trump to arrive for the scheduled news conference, he was storming off on Air Force One. We learned about his departure on Twitter. Here's my Trump Twitter voice. 
When today's meetings are over, I will be headed back to Washington. We won't be doing a press conference at the close of NATO because we did so many other over the past two days. Safe travels to all. Ian Bremmer, president of the Eurasia Group, tweeted, This happens at every NATO summit with Trump, every G7, every G20. The U.S. president is mocked by U.S. allies behind his back. There was an arc to Trump's presence at the annual United Nations General Assembly, or UNGA, sessions in New York each fall. In 2017, Trump offered that he wanted to make the United Nations great. He ruffled feathers by omitting the word again. And he lit into little rocket man, Kim Jong-un. In 2018, diplomats tittered when Trump proclaimed, In less than two years... My administration has accomplished more than almost any administration in the history of our country. America's so true. (laughs) Didn't expect that reaction, but that's okay. Trump took the laughter in stride. The crowd laughed louder, this time with him. In 2019, a subdued Trump proclaimed, The future does not belong to globalists. The future belongs to patriots. During a contentious press conference at the end of that UNGA, Trump told reporters there was no quid pro quo during a phone call with Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky. During the call, Trump asked if Zelensky had dirt on rival Joe Biden and his son Hunter. Andy said his conversation with Zelensky was a perfect conversation. It was beautiful. It was just a perfect conversation. There is more than one plane called Air Force One. It's a term reserved for whichever plane is carrying the president at a given moment. There was a Boeing 747, a decoy Boeing 747. I'm not giving away secret information here. It's been reported. And a smaller Air Force One, that can be used for short trips to airports with shorter runways. I never made it onto the more intimate Mini AF-1. On the big Air Force One, reporters climb a separate stairway to get to the small press area in the back of the plane, with about a dozen business-class seats and a separate hospitality crew. You can't see much outside the press area. There's a wall through the center of the back of the plane, so you can't see anyone to your left, There's a galley in the back and one forbidden door that led to where the White House staff sat. Anita Kumar, then with McClatchy, told me that on her first Air Force One flight, a photographer told her it was okay to walk around to get a look at the plane. She figured it was a prank and stayed put. Smart. I don't think the Secret Service would have been amused. I could see administration aides on the tarmac before they boarded America's plane or as they got off. Trump had been known to chat with reporters on Air Force One, especially the smaller plane. That didn't happen on my trip. The most access to be expected while airborne on the big boy was a visit from Press Secretary Sarah Sanders, who might or might not provide quotes on the record. There was a TV screen in the press area, which broadcast whichever channel Trump was watching. Anyone want to guess which network? Not a trick question. It's Fox News. I flew on Air Force One for one trip with three legs in September 2018. We left Joint Base Andrew and flew straight to Las Vegas, where Trump overnighted after a MAGA rally. 
When Trump left Nevada the next day, he flew to Springfield, Missouri to speak at a rally for Senate candidate Josh Hawley. After the rally, Air Force One headed to New Jersey so Trump could spend the weekend at his home in Bedminster. The food on Air Force One was excellent. I had a glass of wine on the last leg of the trip. It came with a souvenir, Air Force One cocktail napkins. Yes, I still have them. Later, I got a certificate commemorating the flight. One of the pleasures of covering Trump involved the permanent staff, including the Air Force One crew, who were proud and attentive hosts. In the beginning, I didn't see Trump or his team enjoy the White House the way I had seen administration staffers showing off the building when I attended media Christmas parties given by President George W. Bush. I was struck at the hospitality and pride the Bush team displayed on those magical evenings. Of course, to the Bush folks, I was a unicorn, a San Francisco Chronicle columnist who supported the Republican president. Bush would hold two media parties in one night, one largely for print, the other for broadcast media. In 2017, Trump condensed the media Christmas parties into one event. The White House had pared back the list of invitees because Trump was not particularly fond of the press. At my one Trump Christmas party, I didn't see the pride and joy. Maybe, probably, it was because I was different. By then, I'd be going to the White House regularly, so of course, I couldn't feel as special. Was it them or me? It made me sad to think that the Trumpers might not value their special slice of history. Don't go anywhere. I'll be back in a flash with more fake news. Less than one week to go to determine the balance of power in this country. 36 governor's races, 35 seats in the U.S. Senate, the next Speaker of the House. Well, we're going down to the wire. Join us, why don't you, and stay with us into the new year. Ricochet.com has the best center-right commentary around and invites you to join the conversation. Two events opened my eyes and showed me the pride of place and hospitality. As I observed Trump and his team interact with civilians who weren't used to being inside the White House bubble. In 2018, the Las Vegas Patriots, a flag football team, was invited to attend the President's Council on Sports, Fitness, and Nutrition. I joined them on the South Lawn. The President was having a blast, chatting up parents, talking to the kids. Ivanka was there. Sarah Sanders, a rock star to the MAGA crowd, chatted up everyone. Health and Human Services Secretary Alex Azar and Chief of Staff John Kelly also participated because it was fun. In 2019, I took my cousin Kathy's granddaughters, Ava and Evelyn Cook, to take our daughters and sons to work day. Sharing the podium with her children, Scarlett, Huck, and George, Sarah Sanders took questions from the kids who posed as journalists, and Vice President Mike Pence joined in. Ava stumped the Vice President when she asked if there was a place he'd always wanted to visit but hadn't. Pence couldn't think of one. One thing about Donald Trump... He loves children. Trump delivered remarks on the South Lawn where he urged the sons and daughters of journalists and White House staffers to never smoke, drink, or take drugs. He also got in a good-humored jab at the media. I even love the media today. I see these beautiful children, products of the media. And I actually like you much more than your parents. And Trump talked about how much he loved the White House itself. 
a reputation of reports that he found the accommodations beneath the splendor of his world-class hotels. Sometimes I walk up these paths and I look around and I say, wow, there is no place like this anywhere on earth. Trump did not like to travel. So when he did travel, he preferred to sleep at one of his many properties. Fortunately for me, that list included the Trump International Hotel off the Strip in Las Vegas. During the 2020 campaign season, Trump arranged his rallies and fundraisers in western states in a way that allowed him to spend nights in his Las Vegas hotel. A February 2020 trip included stops in Beverly Hills, Bakersfield, Phoenix, and Colorado Springs, which allowed Trump to spend three overnights in Sin City. The timing was not coincidental. Las Vegas also was hosting a Democratic presidential primary debate during that trip, and Trump knew how to steal the spotlight. When he returned from a rally in Phoenix on the night of the debate, he ordered his motorcade to cruise the Strip. The trip also included a Vegas rally attended by my newspaper's owners, Trump mega-donors Sheldon and Dr. Miriam Adelson. With an eye toward winning the Silver State, Trump offered that he was okay on Yucca Mountain and suggested that only bad journalism would report otherwise. Yucca Mountain is a proposed nuclear waste facility north of Las Vegas. Supporting it can have adverse consequences for any candidate who wants to win Nevada. Barack Obama and Joe Biden opposed the measure, which the late Senator Harry Reid worked so hard to bury. Trump owns a hotel in Las Vegas. He had to know the politics of the issue, and yet he avoided taking a stand on Yucca Mountain in 2016. Shortly before the general election, he promised a reporter he'd make his position known on Yucca Mountain before the November vote, but he did not take a definitive position that year. Then in his first two budget plans, Trump allocated millions to re-license Yucca Mountain. Didn't seem like smart politics. The president's so-called skinny budgets are more aspirational than operational. So why go there? With 2020 in the balance, however, Trump came out against the proposed facility. He had lost Nevada narrowly by 2.4% of the vote to Hillary Clinton. Maybe opposition to Yucca Mountain could flip the state in his favor. As it turns out, Trump came out against Yucca Mountain and still lost the silver state to Biden by the same 2.4% margin. In 2020, however, Trump thought he could win Nevada, a reason he kept visiting the state. In February, he tweeted that he had listened to Nevadans and now supported alternatives to Yucca Mountain. At a rally attended by the Adelsons, Trump asked the Nevada crowd, why should you have nuclear waste in your backyard? And he said he hoped the media can finally report it properly. Trump turned to the Adelsons and asked, You have somebody, Sheldon, do you have somebody in your newspaper back there who can write? Awkward. For me, RJ publisher and editor Keith Moyer released a laconic response. Add the Review Journal to a long list of media companies that the president has woven into his ridiculous fake media narrative. Yes, clearly the RJ was no lapdog newspaper. As I mentioned earlier, when Trump traveled, he tried to sleep in his own real estate. He spent many weekends and holidays at his treasured properties, Mar-a-Lago and Bedminster, 
The Tony Florida and New Jersey resorts were other exceedingly rich people ate and played. His weekend and holiday travel had two calendars, Thanksgiving through Easter for Mar-a-Lago and Bedminster for warmer weather. On occasion, Trump invited world leaders to join him at his signature restaurants. It was over dessert at Mar-a-Lago in April 2017 that Trump told Chinese President Xi Jinping that he had bombed Syria. As he later told Fox Business Network's Maria Bartiromo, he dropped the news over, The most beautiful piece of chocolate cake that you've ever seen. The press stayed in hotels other than Mar-a-Lago, just as the press sleep out of sight of President Joe Biden's Wilmington, Delaware home. Given the cost and time commitment, I did not try to cover Trump when he visited his Florida and New Jersey residences. The advantage of covering Trump at one of those two resorts, however, was that the press frequently would invite Trump staffers to dinner. It was an opportunity to bond with Trump world. That setup didn't work well for Madeleine Westerout, Trump's personal assistant. In August 2019, Deputy Press Secretary Hogan Gidley invited Westerout to join him at a dinner with reporters as Trump was staying at Trump National Golf Club, Bedminster. Hogan left the dinner for a spell for a Fox News interview. Like others at the table, Westerout, then 28, had been drinking, and she had started drinking earlier in the day. She said some things she should not have said, that she was closer to Trump than his daughter's, and that Trump considered his daughter Tiffany to be overweight. The dinner was supposed to be off the record, but one or more of the attendees apparently told colleagues not at the dinner what was said. Word of Westerout's indiscretion spread. Before the month was over, the New York Times broke the story, based on leaks by reporters who attended the dinner to New York Times reporters who did not. In the blink of an eye, Westerout was out of a job. That never should have happened. It was an off-the-record dinner, one reporter leaking to another reporter. That's a weasel workaround. It stinks, and it makes a press corps appear dishonest and unreliable. Westerout had theories about who broke that trust, which she wrote about in her book, Off the Record, My Dream Job at the White House and What I Learned, although she was in no position to know for sure. Two of the reporters at the dinner made it known that they were furious at the violation of expected confidentiality. Loose lips had gotten a young staffer fired, not over a vital issue of national security, but over gossip. It was a sorry day for journalism. I'm Deborah J. Saunders, former White House correspondent for the Las Vegas Review-Journal and fellow at the Discovery Institute's Chapman Center for Citizen Leadership. Thanks for joining me as I first set foot in the Trump White House, battled for access in the 49-seat briefing room, and catched a ride on Air Force One. Next, COVID comes to town. Meet the White House Coronavirus Task Force. Relive the lockdowns, mass controversies, the spread of COVID throughout the West Wing, and the successful push for a vaccine. With Trump at the nation's helm, America confronted a great unknown, a plague that eventually would take more than a million American lives. California locked up, and Trump still held rallies. It was, after all, an election year. This podcast was produced by Beowulf Rockland and Rosabelle Hine of Two Squared Media Productions, with editing assistance from Lauren Little. 
I want to thank the Las Vegas Review-Journal and C-SPAN for material cited in this podcast.